0: Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachum, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. All right, you're really in for a treat today. Uh, Today's guest is someone who's been doing this for a long time and has uh, been that proverbial man in the arena. And because of that, um, has a ton of wisdom. And the great news is that he is willing to share it with us today his career. He's worked at companies that you all uh, have heard of many, many times, IBM, BMC, Splunk. He's a board member and advisor to many companies, including ours. He's a co-author of a book called The Success Cadence, along with Dave Matson and Bart Finelli. He's the pride of the Ohio State University. Tom Schodorf, welcome to Coach the Scale. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Gr- Great to have you in a uh, recording time uh, right before Thanksgiving. So uh, I know it's a busy time for everybody. Appreciate you carving out some time with us today, and I will get right into it. So as I tried to allude in, in, in the uh, intro, uh, you have perspective, right? You, you, you've been doing this. You've done a lot. You've seen a lot. And no doubt, you've come across a lot of the beliefs and the, and the myths that are uh, prevalent in our business. So I wanna ask you this, what's a common myth that persists in sales organizations, Tom, that you think is misguided? and Maybe why does the myth persist?
1: Good question. There's a lot of them, I think. So hopefully, hopefully I can mention a few and uh, see if I'm on the right track with them. Um, one is that, and it kind of bothers me, is that salespeople are strictly coin-operated. I just do not find that to be completely true. People are, the salespeople are people and they're motivated by a lot of things that may not be just about money. However, we as companies put a plan in front of them and tell them this is how they're going to make coin. So, of course, they're going to try to do that. Uh, we call them coin operated, but it's because we're telling them to be that way. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's why I think it's, also super important to construct a proper sales plan, which could be a whole nother topic. But I think that's one of the myths about salespeople that is sort of bothers me because it makes them sound kind of cheap. Um, but another myth would be that they're prima donnas or that they only care about themselves. Um, and, and I would say to that, only if you hire them that way. Or <laughs> Some them. are, right? Well, it's of course. But, but I've also seen creamed donnas in virtually every other function of the business. So it's not just sales. Again, coming back to people are people and you can find all kinds everywhere. Another myth uh, that they make too much money. Well, well how much is too much? I, I don't know. Uh, tr- try to, try to be a salesperson if you're not a salesperson. It's like being a professional athlete. There's, if you're not good enough, somebody's going to knock you off your perch. You have to be on your game all the time. So generally, I believe they make, if you know, with a properly constructed sales plan and 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 product, uh, they make exactly what they deserve, uh, because and so since so much of their pay is performance based.
0: Yeah, and, what- and with that, and with that, Tom, because because I have not met a salesperson who uh, or he or she says I make too much money. So you're looking at that from your perspective of uh, building and leading organizations and liaising with other leaders in the organization and the board and and those folks outside the sales organization would have that uh myth per se that salespeople make too much money correct
1: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. these are more about salespeople, i mm-hmm. think than with within salespeople. they don't they don't yeah. need that way. but my come back to, to people who say that is you know try it go ahead and interview for the job and see if you can get it see if you can you know satisfy all the requirements and then we'll put you in that role and see what happens. And then you can make all the money. I mean, go ahead. Uh, the, the final myth, and, and there's another one that I think is completely untrue, is that they'll, they'll lie, cheat, or steal to get the sale. And I think, especially in the last you know, 20 years or maybe even longer, that is entirely not true. They are, they are building their brand. They're smart people. They're building the brand. They know that to achieve the objectives for themselves and for the company, they have to make sure that they're providing extraordinary value to both. And, and so, they, they won't do that. They won't lie, cheat, or steal to get the sale, so to speak, because it's going to catch up to them. They know that. Uh, all the ones that I know are very professional, and they, and they want to do what's right by everybody.
0: Kind of like what you said about people that are prima donnas or coin operated, uh, they can be, if you hire them that way. And, you know, certainly uh, over time sales, uh, you know, has earned a reputation for, you know, why people say they'll lie cheat, or steal, because it's happened. Um, you know, what, what, it, there's a lot of reasons why that could happen, but is, does leadership have a responsibility there when it comes to the, that culture to make sure that, you know, uh, prima aren't welcome here or lying, cheating, and stealing is not part of our brand at all. Like what's the role of leadership there? Yeah. It, it all starts
1: from, uh, from the recruiting process, from the job description, and then from the recruiting process. And if you, if you come across as, as a person who would reward that kind of behavior, then that's probably what you're going to see. So, uh, so what i found really works is to, um, is to, make sure we have a defined culture and that we communicate it even way back into the interview process you know those kinds of things just simply will not be tolerated if you're one of those type of people where you like that then go work somewhere else don't even interview we're done you know try something else so if you lay it out and and people are hired under those the expectations that you lay out then i sleep very well at night knowing that if i have to get rid of them it's because it's more on them perhaps than me
0: quite a bit because they know how they're supposed to behave. They know because, yeah, they know because you've told them and you defined it. It goes back to that, that the, the axiom, you can't get mad at somebody for doing something you didn't tell them they couldn't do. Right. You know, you, you lay it out there, then they do it. And then, Hey, look, that's on them. That's your fault. That's not my fault. Um, Exactly. And,
1: And you mentioned leadership. And so leadership does have a special responsibility in that also in walking the talk. We can't have a, uh, you know, do as I say, not as I do culture. You, you, you've got you've to be the person that you, in terms of cultural attributes, that you want the team to reflect. So you, you got to follow your own rules. You got to lead from the front. You, you got to be that
0: person. Bang. Really? That's, man, that things. No, exactly. 100%. Um, easy, easy to say, it doesn't always happen in reality. Uh, Tom, you have a, I think a unique and interesting per perspective from the position where you sit these days. And you've heard a lot about, uh, these terms over the years, uh, territory, equality, uh, fair quotas. When I say territory, equality and fair quotas, what, what, com- what comes to mind and what are the, the myths or the mistakes that, that are made when, when contemplating, uh, cutting territories and, and quotas?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, this is really, really huge, um, a topic, uh, territory, it frustrates me no end to either work at or consult with a company that has, um, if you, if you objectively score a territory, it might be a 20 for one person and a eight for another. I mean, why would you do that? You, you, you hire people to to fit your culture and the skills that are required. And you, one would think that you would give them an equal opportunity to uh, to be successful. But so many companies don't do that. They, they, uh, they have a few good folks. They give them the rich territories, the richest territories, and those people make the most money. People coming in from the outside usually get greenfield, very hard to work, uh, not a very high score on, on the territory. And then they wonder why they're failing well uh, you know i guess they figure it's uh you know some sort of war of attrition uh but but it does nothing except hurt the company because now you have good people who are uh unable to be successful who are unable to work the territory as you know that it should be worked and and they fail so you end up getting rid of that rid of them and it costs you even more money much better to have an objective scoring around a territory based on a few factors that are that, that are very much related to your product and product market fit, and then try to make those fairly equal. And if you can't do that because of geography and what have you, then then make the quotas different at, at least so that you know people have an opportunity to to make the number based on the opportunity that's there so, so uh,
0: that's how that's how I would do it so here's the situation right and, and you've no doubt come across this uh more than once Somebody a senior person leaves, and he or she's got a group of accounts, and uh, they're bringing somebody so they got to hire somebody, but oftentimes what happens is the the, the leader will take the top you know, the best accounts, the A accounts, they'll divvy them up with the, you know, top performers or their, their buddies or whoever's there. And then they'll strip the territory of, of all the good parts. And then they'll bring somebody new in, but they'll give them the same quota as the person had who was the top performer who, who just left, but without the ingredients and the, really the, the opportunity to be successful. Right? Have you? I'm assuming you've seen that happen. Maybe I'm not. But uh, does it happen? Why does it happen? And what's the problem with doing that? It happens all the time, and I think
1: I think it happens because the CRO or the RevOps leader or the CEO, whoever is is responsible for such things, it lacks the courage of their of their own convictions, lacks courage of their company to to provide the tools necessary for for people to be successful. They're, they're, they're afraid to, to make the, the tough call. And it only hurts the company when you do that. You can't scale under those circumstances at all. Uh, you end up with attrition because you give the new person some crap territory, and then they leave, and then you wonder why your attrition's so high. And, and of course, that costs incredible amounts of money in terms of lost revenue as well as, as uh, you know, wasted expenses. Uh, on those folks. So yeah, that, that happens all the time and unnecessarily so.
0: What about this, uh, account that's, let's just say it's a fruitful account. That's, you know, they've been a client for a while. Um, they're always interested in learning, you know, how the technology can benefit them. They're always willing to evaluate new products that may come out. And so that would be like an, a, a customer in, in this particular business. How can bringing a new person on board and giving them that, what about looking at it through the lens of that new person? Is there a benefit to that person if you're hiring the right person coming in and having an opportunity to work with a client like that and be able to, you know, showcase their skills and learn by doing instead of just knocking on doors uh, that, you know, may, may, may be locked or no one's home. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts there? Well, it's like, uh, there's so many analogies to sports, but it's kind of
1: like that. You got to give people the opportunity to have the ball. And if you don't, they're not, they're not going to score a touchdown or, or a goal or, you know, whatever, whatever sport it is. So yeah, you, you, you have to have faith that your process works and then, and then execute against it. If you if you find that you made a mistake, of course, then, then correct the mistake. But, but you got to give them a chance. And, uh, and, and the people who are your previous top performers will still perform well, even if they have some territory taken away, because they don't have the time, typically, to work the whole territory anyway. So it, right. it sort of comes out to, their, if they have 20 accounts, their number five top account, they're not even getting to. But you could yeah. build a whole core territory around that for a new person, and, and then it can get even better from there. Instead, we tend to give them, or some companies tend to give them the 18th, 19th, and 20th uh, account, which, which really is, you know, kind of dirt.
0: Okay, so and I, I'm pulling at this thread a little longer than I normally would because I, I see this problem persist a lot. And so the scenario would be, okay, um, where they strip the territory of, of all the, the, you know, the, say the A accounts, and they're giving them, like you said, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th type accounts. But they say, but we're going to hire someone more junior. We're going to hire a developmental sales rep for this developmental territory. I see that all the time. What's the problem with that? Um, well, it, it sounds like what they're just trying
1: to do is save money. Like, like they're, they're, it, it sounds like what they're doing is, is putting... Uh, somebody in place because someone told them to hire a bunch of salespeople rather than matching uh, territories and opportunities to to what they really need, which is which is a salesperson to work through those, their ICP, so to speak, their, their ideal customer. You're asking, you're, you're, you're paying them less, you're getting a junior person, you're asking them to, to make something of of these territories that are not in the icp and you think you're winning because you're paying them less money well how about just not even create that territory if you have to stretch that far to find a a territory then maybe you just don't even hire that rep and and you put that money somewhere else like Mm. in product or product market fit or opening the aperture of the icp or the tam so that so that you then can hire some other people or make the product easier to use. So you don't need such a senior person to be be able to, to sell it or, or make it so that the value within the product is easily seen so that the customer doesn't need to be convinced over the course of a year through elaborate business cases that they, that they need it. So there, there are many ways to attack that, but I think, I think the, the gist of why it happens is that somebody somewhere in the company, whether it's accounting or the board or the CEO is looking at, oh, sales rep, territory, just apply it. Don't pay him much. Hire a junior person. It it doesn't work that way unless all of the other elements of the company, all the other functional elements in the
0: company are positioned to be able to take advantage of that territory. And you talk about all the functional elements like working and you, before you mentioned something about trusting the process and, This podcast is called Coach to Scale. So we're talking about coaching here. Tom, you've been uh, an inside rep, a a field rep, an enterprise rep, a transactional commercial rep. You've worked your way up several layers of management. You've run business units. You're the advisor to many companies now. Along the way, is there some level, any level of commonality in all the coaching that you've done over the years, regardless, Tom, of your position or of even their position. Yeah,
1: yeah, there really is. No matter who you're coaching, it's you've got to know the person. You've got to know what their role is, what their goals are, what motivates them. Just regardless of role, of level, of anything. You've got to know that, and you've got to know your business and how their role fits within the business. And then if you, if you put that together around the, the vision and the mission and the goals of the company, then you can start to, to create uh, a coaching plan or be successful in a coaching situation uh, better than, than you would otherwise. So again, it doesn't matter really so much about all those other factors, except what motivates them, what the company needs, And then you can, you can coach to that. Uh, an example, if, if I could, please, I was was working with a CRO who was absolutely brilliant. He was ex McKinsey, but he never actually sold anything in his life. Yeah. I mean, we could say that we sell ourselves every day, but you know what I mean? Never really sold a product yet. He wanted to be respected for being in the role of CRO. And so the, the coaching centered on using his strengths. Of communications, and this is where knowing your people comes into play. But using his strengths of communications and industry knowledge uh, to, to upskill the reps by doing ride-alongs, but to higher level execs than those reps would ordinarily call on, and, and a couple things happened as a result. One, he learned about selling from his reps and managers because they knew a different, they had a different skill set than he did. Conversely, the people who he did the ride-alongs with learned how to call higher in the organization, which is something that the company who was selling the products wanted to do anyway. So the net is he became more respected and really more useful to the field and the cause, but he had to know the people, he had to know what he could provide, and he was able to advance the mission of the company because of it, to move up stack in the customer, uh, location.
0: Great example. And, and it seems like there was, that was mutually beneficial. So the salespeople that were going, um, that were going along with this, the new CRO, right? They were learning how to call high and the CR the new CRO was learning kind of the, the machinations, like the nuts and bolts of, of selling what yeah. needs to be present in order for that to happen. Yeah, like what? What do what do the individuals need to possess? What are, what does the culture need to value to put to make sure that type of situation uh, is the is the outcome that is achieved? Because I can imagine if if certain things aren't present, those outcomes that you just talked about um, aren't achieved. Like it, that could go the wrong way. Yep.
1: But the first thing that came to, to mind when you asked this question is is the word humility. I mean, that's, that's one thing. The, the, in this case, the CRO needs to be humble enough to know that they can learn something from a rank-and-file sales rep. Uh, so, you know, put, putting the ego off to the side a little bit is is good there. But the, the CRO needs to, needs to know how the pieces of the company fit together and, uh, and, and to know at least enough about the person that they're traveling with in this case to to know what their aspirations are uh, because during the drive time and the you know waiting for the meeting to happen kind of time in addition to going over your objectives for the call and the normal kinds of tactical things that you would that you would do in those discussions is to get to know the person a little bit better and and as you do that first of all it helps them relax a little bit prior to what could be a, a pretty uh, um, intense um, sales situation uh, but it, but it enables them to connect dots between their life their career where they want to go and how it all sits together so they need to know that but but they also need to know the company and so also in the context of, of that conversation, conversation the CRO can uh, uh, can translate the message from from what the the contributor may hear on a day-to-day basis from the CEO or someone else in the company to their specific role. So, so the coaching can kind of go both ways for one, because there's, mm-hmm. there's QA, but mainly the CRO will get to know the individual contributor. The contributor will get to know up the line how, uh, what they do makes a difference to what the company actually cares about. So those elements do have to be in place for this to be effective.
0: And so you said a couple of things there. You talked about getting to know uh, each other, getting to know the individuals, and that breaks down walls. And the other thing is about, I think, ties back to purpose. I think people want to know that what they're doing um, is, is achieve, helping the organization achieve something even bigger. People want to be, belong to something that's bigger than themselves, but this is a lot of work, right? It's viewed as a lot of work by leaders, like at all different levels, not just the CRO, even even down to the frontline manager, that the time it takes to get to know somebody, um, where, where do a lot of leaders maybe get this wrong and kind of why? Um, why well, I think a lot of them are trying
1: to check boxes rather than go with the intent of in this case coaching. Uh-huh. Uh, they're they're told by HR or by their boss that they need to do a one-on-one with their people every mm-hmm. week or mm-hmm. that they need to get to know their people or whatever. Or or uh, every quarter or every year fill out this performance evaluation. So they so they do that because they're told to do it and they tend to, to then manage by the rules instead of of maybe a little bit of intuition. Uh, so, the, so the, you know, I would say, you know, less, less on the rule side, more on the, you know, the bigger picture stuff. Um, so, so I think that's, I think that's why it happens. We we've, we've put maybe in some cases too much science into our businesses and the science ends up manifesting itself or showing itself up as forms. Uh, you know software programs that uh, that people are selling that that you can maybe automate it a little bit, but are not really getting at the the intent so those things are fine as long as it gets to the intent. They're not so good if it's just to uh, if it's just rote if you're just doing it so you don't get in trouble with someone so sure. you, so you, yeah, yeah. you have that culture it's really part of the culture you, you really have to have the culture of I'm doing this because. It makes total sense to the company to our customers to our employees to our business to, to coach and, and I and I got uh, to show enough empathy and interest to, uh,
0: to uncover what really really matters and, and Tom, you, you talk about the empathy and interest and um, doing what makes sense like it's just common sense it's logical but sometimes in, when the pressure is so great, uh, logic and common sense get tossed out the window. And there is a lot of pressure in the business. In fact, it, uh, many would say it's, it's, it's at a, a very, very high level, one of the highest levels uh, right now that it's been in a long time. I think the average tenure for a sales leader for a CRO is less than two years against 1.7 years. And a lot of times the, the leaders, they blame you. Not not you personally, but people like you, people on the board, uh, you know, the CEO, the board members, and they say, I I can't be a I have to be this robot that's focused on the numbers and being a driver because that's what the board and the CEO, they don't care that if I know you, they don't care if I'm empathetic. They need results. And so, like what a lot of what we're talking about is a little bit of a long game in the sense that, yeah, it's common sense, but Uh, it takes more time to get to know somebody. It takes more time to get, you know, to explain what they're doing fits in and, you know, give feedback and things like that. So a lot of people just give it up. Like they just don't do it. Um, Why is the juice worth the squeeze when it comes to this whole coaching thing? Well, it, it,
1: because it gets results for, for, I mean, that's the, the simple, uh, simple answer. But, but kind of to the long game versus you know, getting immediate results, I think most leaders, especially sales leaders, need to do a better job of painting for themselves, but, but mainly for their people, a, a picture of short, medium, and long-term um, objectives. And this isn't that hard to do if you have any level of experience in the, in the field. And and you tell your, your folks, you know, here's what we're going to do now. An example of this might be, we're going to, we're going to properly segment our ICP so we can go after it most efficiently. We're going to, we're going to model our existing assets. That means people, processes, tools, whatever, around our sales process. And we're going to monitor it on a weekly and quarterly basis. That's what we're going to do now uh, because we can only focus on two or three things Mm -hmm. Uh, However, in doing that, so that's the short-term thing, but in in doing that, they can describe that in six months, we're going to be looking at something else. We're going to, not something else, but we're going to look at additional things. We're going to be layering something in. We're going to be looking at an enablement program that is going to help you achieve the skills that you're going to need at that time because you've seen our roadmap. We're coming out with some new products, some new messaging. Uh, we're we're going to do that. And, and we're working on that right now. We have another team working on that. Also tell them that in, a, in about a year or two, we're going we're gonna to double in size. Now, I don't want you to be all wigged out about that uh, because we're going to continue to train just as we've done in the past. You know, we've, we've, we've earned that trust. Uh, but we're going to need more managers. So knowing you... Uh, and And your aspirations for uh, for advancement, you might be able to be put in consideration for one of those roles, since, especially since our culture is based on higher within. But I need everyone to step up now to a couple things, and that is to to go after the things that we just described as the things that we need to do now, the proper segmentation, modeling the assets and and getting into our our uh, rhythm and cadence but but I, I need you to have an eye for the things that we're gonna to have to do medium term and longer term, so that we're not doing things now that are counter to that. In fact, we're doing things now that are easy to do now that position us to accomplish those. And you find that when you do that, you you will start to see tangible renal results even now, because you're, you're, you're giving them the vision of what it's gonna look like. And they start to buy into that vision and they go, oh yeah, okay, I see that. And they actually will do a better job on the stuff that you're asking them to do now than they would otherwise when, when you don't give them the medium and the long-term vision. So you're laying the groundwork, you're, you're maybe making the playbook, you're, you're telling them how the playbook is going to be a little more involved or perhaps even complicated later, later but you're giving them the confidence that we're going to give them the tools to be able to do that so stay with us. It's going to be great, a great ride, but here's what we got to do now. Usually the short-term
0: results end up happening anyway when you do this. And you're also painting this vision. You're talking about the why behind it. And you, you know, you're creating the, the possibilities. You're creating possibilities for people down the road too. For example, if you're doubling in size and someone's working really hard and is, meaningfully, is contributing meaningfully to help you get there, well, something good might be there uh, down the road for them as this organization doubles in size, right? So there's a lot of uh, positives that that can come out of the situation that that you just discussed. Now that that said, though, uh, there's a lot of fears when it comes to when it, when it comes to painting the vision. Um, just fears in general, the fear, these irrational fears. Impede leaders' ability to do things that they know they should be doing. Um, what are some of those irrational fears that you believe may be harbored by too many sales leaders? Yeah, there's. I'll, I'll give you one
1: kind of external one, although it could be internal as well, and then and then one that's pretty pretty close to home with with sales leaders. First one is yeah. um, that i believe one of the irrational fears is that they feel that they have a weaker hand than they really do in any negotiation and and this could be external and internal first the external with a with a a client that says uh you know we're going for a million dollar deal uh the client says uh you know the competitor is offering it for four hundred thousand and uh and so a lot of times we'll do it we'll
0: do it for three hundred thousand
1: yeah yeah we'll beat that because yeah. because my boss said do not lose any deals to price this corner because we really need it really bad it's urgent well we, more often than not we have a stronger hand in negotiation than we think especially if we did our job right if we believe in our process if we have the courage of conviction if we you know have done the right things through the sale to prove value we probably have a stronger hand than than we know. Now, that doesn't mean we should be obnoxious or arrogant about it. It just, it just means that we, it's just not true that we ha- are the weaker hand in these negotiations if we did our jobs right. Uh, we just have to make sure we've sold value, we've connected with their, um, with the appropriate people, and we've helped the economic buyer, but, but others as well, um, to believe that we're going to be able to help them achieve their goals with our solution. That's usually the primary things that it takes. So, um, so, if you
0: have that confidence that you're talking about, it's a lot easier to say, Well, I appreciate you bringing up that situation and telling me about the competitive bid. Wow, it sounds really good. Why wouldn't you just go with them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. we're uh, strip line right there. I
0: mean, I mean, yeah. Why not? Yeah.
1: Why you got to be confident. Well, why have we even gotten this far in the sales process if that's where you're gonna go? Why, are, why, are, why have you wasted your time? Yeah, there's all kinds of, of things that you can say there, but, but all along mm-hmm. those lines. But So that's one of, the, one of the fears, I think, that's harbored by sales leaders in the back of their mind. And a lot of it is caused by what we were talking about earlier is the pressure on short-term results. We're, we're, mm-hmm. We think that we, we absolutely need this deal or the entire world's gonna fall apart. And we, we can't feel that way. We have to be a little bit fearless as again, as long as we did the right job leading up to this point, if we didn't do the right job at the, leading up to this point, then yes, we should be in fear and we should
0: probably be fired. I agree. You sh- yeah. You should be kept up at night. Um, so, uh, you got to do the work. Uh, you got to do the work, I think is what you're saying. So that was the external one. Uh, I think you're, uh, it is an internal one too, right? Well, There's another one and that's
1: maybe this is the negotiation kind of internally. A lot of times, uh, sales leaders, I see this a lot on, on frontline managers, but even, even higher up, they, they will feel that their top performers are going to quit on them if they have a hard conversation with them, or if they raise their quota, or if they cut their territory or, or what have you. And, and I, I think that's somewhat irrational. Again, if, if you get to, um, to know your people and know your business, you, you know that most reps, you start to, to realize that top performers don't necessarily quit for those kinds of reasons. They, they, they're, it's a lot more complicated than that, or a lot more uh, nuanced uh, than that. But reps tend to make more money, and you can prove this time and again from you know, many experiences out in the field. They tend to make even more money when they focus on fewer accounts assuming that you have a decent product and and all that. Uh especially you know the, the big accounts with more complex sales. That's been my experience forever. I've we've cut territory, cut territory and these people keep making more money. But the benefit of doing
0: that oh, is, is that and Tom, and they're gonna bitch along the way, right? The top performers oh. like no one everyone if they're good, they're always going oh you can't take that away from me, right? They're gonna create that environment. That plays on the irrational fear of of the leader. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah. In fact, that's. I was chuckling because that's kind of one of the myths that is true. Is that reps are always going to complain about stuff like that? That is that is not a myth. That is, that is true. <laughs> but but with with these reps, it, a lot of it comes down to trust and leadership, and of course that's going to be enhanced by their perception of your ability to lead them on, on a path to get to where they want to go in their career and their life, which is why you got to get to know them. Um, but, but also, you, you don't want to cut the territories too fast on, on reps, y- even your top performers. And it's, it's not just like boiling the frog. It's just, it's just being fair. You, know, you, you, don't, you, don't, uh, you, you don't just hack it up for the sake of hacking it up. You got you to gotta look at their territory. You got to score it. You got to see if they can still make money on it. And, and what I would recommend you do as well is even in spite of all that and taking away some of their, their patch, still leave them a little bit more than you would have otherwise. Because after all, they have been working that territory for a few years, probably. And if you have a long complex sale, this is about when they're to pay off. So let them, let them make a little bit of money just just make sure that they can handle the territory that they've got you, you just don't want to um hurt the company by allowing them to be holding you know eighty percent of their territory just in case a bluebird comes in and those accounts aren't being worked at all and so you you, you need to do a try for the company and that means pulling those accounts away hmm. um, so and people won't leave i i've i've not i don't I don't think I've ever lost a rep due to cutting their territories. If, if it's done properly, if it's communicated properly, it's it's not something that that typically drives them away.
0: I, I recall a conversation we have. I I, I may be misremembering, but it, it goes down it, on, on. It's it's aligned with this topic. Um, a lot of times, what I've observed happening over the past bunch of years is that. Um, organizations uh, feel like they, they're afraid to they're afraid to pay out, right they're trying they're trying to balance against the the P and L um, but but in this environment in particular companies are asked uh, being asked to do more with less so um, and but a, and on top of that on top of trying to do more accomplish more with fewer let's say salespeople they're creating this tremendous overassign. Right They over assign quota for one reason or another um, and i and I think you mentioned that bothers the hell out of you, which tells me that you see that. Can you talk a little bit about the the uh bad things that happen when companies feel like they could just you know over assign quota at some crazy level?
1: yeah, this is a big topic uh and and as you you know i'm pretty pretty uh I- emotional about it but but one one thing that comes to mind, like right off the bat, is if you're going to do overassignment, h- how much overassignment are you going to do? And how did you figure that out? Is it 20%? Is it 30? Is it 50? Why did you do that? Wh- why, how did you come up with that number? Did you pull it out of the sky? If you pulled it out of the sky, then I would say your financial reporting and your rev ops is not doing their job. You can't just pull that out of the sky. I mean, there has to be some rationale to it. So that alone shows that maybe your internal processes and, and skill sets, maybe of some people involved, are not as sharp as they should be, because what makes one percentage better than another? And, it, and if you're sure it's 20%, then why can't you sure it's 20% over assignment? Why can't you be sure that it's 3% and just model the salary plan around that? You, you don't necessarily have to spend any more money. You, you just model the set the salary plan around a three percent over assignment or zero percent over assignment. Yeah, and well, it won't it won't hurt you to do that if if you if you have a good sales process with a predictable, typically predictable results that are that are consistent. So so I, I would say you don't need to overassign. The downside of overassignment is that people see it for what it is. It's a cut in your pay. I mean it's a cut in your when they when they do that typically I mean 90% of the time that's all it is we're going to overassign so we can cut your pay somehow executives seem to think that the company is in safer hands by having an overassignment when really all it does is mask the true problems within the company why not be razor thin and have the the senior executives and the individual contributors have the same quota when you, when you add up all the individual contributors, yeah. in it, when you add then all we're all in it together. We're all in then, it together. Then, we're all- then it exposes the real problems as to why we're not making our number. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're not assuming we're not making our number, it, it, okay. it really forces you. If you have overassignment, the executives are like, oh, everything's fine. We've assigned uh, 100 million and we, only, and we only need to make 80 in order for us to be happy enough to do uh, cartwheels on the 50th floor. So that, that, that doesn't help solve the problems of the company. That just makes them feel secure when they really shouldn't be.
0: What about the flip side? Is there ever a reason where under assignment of quota would be okay?
1: If you're, um, well, so this is a case, uh, I, where I, I use the analogy of, uh, general motors who've been over the course of 30 or 40 years have tried to go out of business a couple of times. If their cars are any good, they, their cars will be sold. And we don't need to uh, bail them out to save the company. Uh, so same thing with our software. If it's any good, if you had under assignment, but your product is really good, you're still going to sell that product. So it, even, it, I mean, I've never seen a rep that had a, a, an under assigned quota go, oh, well, since I'm under assigned, I'm not going to close this extra business and get these accelerators. No, they go after it anyway. If there's demand for the product, the product will get bought. So there, there is some point, though, where capacity of, of a person's ability to do the work does come into play. And that's what I would rather focus on in these kinds of situations than anything else. When you look at your sales process, you look at the number of accounts or the or the, or the territory or the ICP. What needs to be done to, um, to secure those deals, uh, at, you know, within the frame fr- within the buyer's journey, you know, how mm-hmm. many demos do you have to do, how many proof of concepts, how many, how much negotiation, what's your purchasing process like, how many phone calls do you need to make, how many key meetings are there and stuff like that. I would rather uh, focus on that than, than this notion of, of some, uh, kind of arbitrary number. That we've pulled out of a hat with with no regard to those things only to meet a perceived salary requirement or budgetary requirement.
0: All right, well, I would uh, that helped out because I would at least in my mind, would say there was never a reason why you should do that, and uh, I, I recall the conversation we had a while back, and you caused me to look at that a different way, so so thank you. Um, this or that question um tom would you rather have a team of uh you know a a bunch of a players and a bunch of c players or a team with maybe one a player and the rest of b players
1: i i would take the latter i would take the the a and a bunch of b's um mainly because i I believe that B's can be improved upon c's it's going to be a little tough uh, but but B's can be improved upon assuming they have the will to be improved and or to be to get better, and that we have an enablement program that trains them up uh, because if you do that, then the next year or however however long it takes to fully ramp someone you're you're going to have a bunch of A's and you're going to be performing really, really well. Versus if you hung on to some Cs that really probably shouldn't be in your in your company, uh, and a few As, you know, carrying the whole load. That just that just increases your exposure to people who might be prone to becoming a prima donna because they're the only ones producing. So I would I would rather spread the wealth a little bit and and train them up.
0: So it, it requires that you have confidence in your ability to, to train them up because I think a lot of leaders might say, you know what, like they might not say it out outwardly, but they think, Hey, listen, if I, if I have a fifth, you know, half five, eight players or 50% of my team is the people that are performing. I don't really care about the, the rest because these five or so people, these eight players on my team are going to drive the performance anyway. Um, and it's almost like, again, they won't say this, but it's like, uh, if I get anything out of these C players, it, it's gravy. You know, maybe a blind squirrel will get a nut once in a while. But you're, you're saying that's, that's, that's a risky proposition. Yeah, because you,
1: you, can't, you can't take a C to an A. It's, that's really, really hard to do. So when you double in size, you, are you still relying on those same A players? And then when you double in size after that, are you still relying on the same A? At some point, we come back to what we were just talking about, which is the capacity of a person to be able to develop and, and secure deals in, in a territory. They they cannot. They just cannot physically do it. So you need to have more breadth if you want to scale the business. And the the way you get the breadth is breadth is by getting uh, people who are probably for uh, lack of a little bit of skill can be skilled up with more at bats and more success. Then they can become A's. But it, but it's very very difficult. to to take the C's to the A's
0: in a year or two. It's probably just not going to happen. Okay, so you have that team of A's and B's. you uh, you got to skill them up, um, train them up, coach them up. That takes time. And, you know, there's a lot of time wasted in this business, and I heard you express your concern about that also. Tom, Tom, where do you observe a lot of time being wasted across sales organizations that you work with?
1: Uh, Well, other than the normal uh, bickering between functions because they – don't understand what the goals of the company are.
0: Well, oh, the corporate just, salute? It, it's marketing? It's, it's ops? Yeah. yeah.
1: We'll just assume that gets uh, taken care of. Um, I, I, I see, especially recently, we've really emphasized, there's a couple areas. First one is on uh, prep. Uh, prep is more important, and I think we've done a good job as sales leaders to emphasize that especially with complex selling, you, you need to prepare for those calls. But, but I, I see... Quite often that people are overthinking that at some point you just need to act you need to do so uh, an example of this is uh, instead of doing a you know two hour role play for a, you know a call that you're coming up with, just do some bite sized ones you know as you're leading up to the to the call you know what would you do in this situation what if what happens if this person shows up at the meeting um, and then you know maybe even get on the whiteboard what if the, what if they ask us uh, you know to describe this part of our solution? How would you describe that on the whiteboard? And just literally get into it five minutes here, five minutes there, and, and kind of you can reflect them a little bit better. And, you, and you, I, I believe you absorb it better and you, you learn it better. You're, you're probably 80% there in 10 minutes anyway, in terms of accomplishing what you need to do. So just just do it. Uh, don't, don't spin your wheels on trying to get something uh, perfect. Now, I'm not saying that you sacrifice quality. When you're putting a a business proposal in front of a customer—that's got to be super tight. It's got to be, you know, have all of the differentiators, the, uh, the, the value props, the you know, here's what we're going to do kinds of things in it. It's just that this, uh, because of all of the information that's available on LinkedIn and 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 10Ks and annual reports and everything, we we can't. Some people are spending too much time on that. So I think there's a lot of time wasted on that. Yeah. Um,
0: so, so you, you, I laugh because, uh, you know, I think about my drill instructor, uh, in Paris Island, chirping in my ear, proper plant planning prevents piss poor performance Benelli. And then, uh, but also I was sitting in the bullpen as a, a newer sales rep. And there was somebody, uh, my colleague was sitting next to me and, the, and our boss came over and he's like, Hey, to, to the, to the other guy's like, Hey, what are you doing? And he's like, Oh, boss, I'm a. I'm reading this, you know, 10, K I'm reading the annual reports I'm I'm getting ready to call this customer. And he's like, you seem like you're wasting a lot of time reading a lot of stuff. He's like, I think what you're really doing is you're employing the strategy of aggressively waiting for the phone to ring and that ain't going to happen. So you should just better pick up the damn phone. And, there you uh, go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly so, what I'm
1: saying. That's so true. And then there's, there's one more area though, that, um, that has evolved to the point where it's a little distressing, where there's a lot of time wasted and that's on, um, uh, different roles. So, you know, it is sales is a team sport, we've known that for years and and I'm seeing and have seen a lot of poor handoffs between the roles like SE to rep rep to services, services to TAM, TAM to CSM. Uh, if it, there's a lot of uh, re what happened. Or, hmm. or you end up with an eight-legged sales call or a 12-legged sales call, which is also wasteful. So there's a lot of poor handoffs going on. And I, and I, I think the, the companies can do a better job of, of oh. explaining and adhering and um, uh, understanding how our sales process works and what their role is in it, in specifically in each milestone that is required to have the most likely chance for a successful sale. So it may mean that somebody is inserted in the sales process here, 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 and there, but, but over here is where the, the brunt of it is. But, but the handoffs tend to be a little bit siloed, where you know, the SC does their thing, and then they hand it over to the rep. The rep hands is over to services, and and there's a there's it's not smooth. A lot of time is wasted here. So a clear sales process with a really good understanding of what skills are required at each milestone point within that sales process will go a long way to uh to smoother handoffs, which saves incredible amounts of time. Speeds up the sa- uh, the sale uh, a lot. It creates less confusion with the customer, and so you end up having a higher chance of success.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look it, it, every company out there wants to do more deals, bigger deals, faster deals and and scale, and wasting time certainly gets in gets in the way of of doing that. And so you know, being more efficient than the way you discuss uh, makes makes all the sense in the world. Not easy, but worth the focus. So, Tom, uh, as we close up here, again, we're talking about coaching and developing people and people like yourself that care about that, that believe in investing time to get to know people, to understand what goals are important to them and help coach them up. Typically, uh, we're the recipient of good coaching somewhere along the way. The behavior was modeled for them. Can you tell us about a time where you were the recipient of? what you would call really good coaching?
1: Uh, Sure.
0: If I could, though, I'll give you um,
1: two examples. Um, The first one, because coaching isn't always necessarily great. Although, if you're, uh, you know, kind of open minded, you may actually learn something regardless, kind of like, not every boss is a good boss, but I still learned a lot from them. Anyway, back in my, uh, my IBM days, uh I, I can't remember the guy's name but he interviewed me for a sales job in in charlotte i was at the time doing production analysis uh role in a plant right, right outside of college it was kind of a spreadsheet jockey kind of thing but but i wanted to be in sales so after the interview um uh he came back and said uh that i i wasn't smart enough to compete with ivy league graduates and, uh, which is what he liked to hire. So I, I kind of wondered why I was in the interview at, uh, to begin with, cause he knew my, my history at a state school. Uh, and, and this one was the one that really bit, he said, I was a terrible presenter and would never make
0: it in sales. So, uh, needless to say, I didn't get a, get the job. Not, not smart and a terrible presenter. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah, really? So, so he was, he was quite arrogant. Uh, but he was right on some level. So you you
1: do a little introspection, and and it was it was harsh coaching and not delivered well. But sometimes you need that to shock the system. So it's not the way I prefer to be coached, but but it is it is instructive in that for some people it works at the right point in their career, and this actually worked. I ended up getting a job in another city straight off same company IBM. Uh, but to be safe. I took up Toastmasters. I forced myself to talk at events, both in the public eye and at private and family functions. I became a reasonably good presenter by, by most objective measures, sometimes even getting compliments. So I, I wouldn't say it was super good coaching, but it was very effective. And for me, my career absolutely rocketed after that. You know, It was like, you I got pr- to prove this guy wrong. Yeah. So, so,
0: so you didn't cry in your, cry in your milk... Uh, you know, and you know, go, go to your safe space. Cause your feelings were, were hurt. You, you didn't like it, but you, you did something about it and good things happened.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I almost probably cried, but, but I, I didn't go to a safe space. In fact, I did the opposite. I put myself in a position to be unsafe, which is to, you know, put myself in front of people to, to learn and, and do better, but probably. So that's, that's one example probably the best coaching i ever received. And it's from many people. It's from uh, Rick Gardner, Debbie Tummins, Alex Schutman, Kaz Santulo at the, at the BMC days, from uh, Godfrey Sullivan uh, from, from my Splunk days, and, and really a whole bunch of folks that I've mentored over the years through, um, through their example and by others' examples and by seeing the subsequent results. And, and that coaching is hire for merit and cultural fit and nothing else, nothing else. Yeah. Merit because this is the way you avoid entitlement. You, invo- you avoid nepotism this way. And you, you, in fact, you avoid every other ism out there because you're showing no bias except against the role itself, the skills that are required on the role. It's completely objective that way. Your decisions and outcomes are more likely to be totally defensible against any metric objection or opposition. So hire for merit and then cultural fit Uh, and and cultural fit, because I've observed that, you know, when people come to your company, because they know and understand and like your company culture, they're more likely to buy into any messaging, any bad event, any pivot, any, any problem that your company may have uh, regardless. Uh, And as a result, that reduces stress in the system. It increases the chances of no-look passes, which increase efficiency. It helps with performance reviews. And it increases overall performance because people are less likely to be dragged down by petty internal politics. So hire hire for merit and for cultural fit, regardless of what that culture is. It could be what you and I may say is a bad culture. It doesn't really matter. Just Just make sure that it's something. Oh, hopefully sure. it's not but it's got to be whatever it is it is yeah that Yeah, makes well, sense a matter of a, it could be a matter of opinion on whether it's bad or not but it's you know but but higher higher for culture uh, so many times one one more little anecdote on that when when i've talked to managers who feel the need to take somebody out of their organization mm-hmm. they and i'm coaching them on it they um you know, they're asking for how to put together a performance plan and all this stuff, and they're talking to HR, and they're saying, well, it, their, their numbers weren't that good last quarter or this month or last year or whatever. And, and I'm thinking, is, is that really the problem? Because I could pick 12 other people who had equally bad performance, and we're not firing them. Why, are we really, why do we really want this person out of the business? Ultimately, most of the time, it boils down to a cultural issue. They're, they're not doing something right. They're not doing updating their CRM system consistently. They're toxic on the floor. They're whatever. But they always then come back to the numbers. Well, it's not the numbers. It's, a, it's another issue. Since it's another issue, coach to that issue. That is the issue.
0: Coach to that. Don't hide behind something else. So merit, cultural fit. Awesome. And Tom, as we close out, um, any advice... For sales leaders, CROs, uh, leaders looking to build uh, a coaching culture. Anything you'd like to tell them? Well, so
1: some of it might be a little bit of a summary from what we've already talked about, but uh, I would, you, you have to know your people in order to coach well, and you have to know your business and their business well in order to connect the dots. So that's one. The second is uh, don't give too much advice all at once, advice and counsel, but do give advice. You know, some people say use the, you know, just the Socratic method, just ask questions. Well, sometimes people want a little bit more than that. They want a little bit of direction. They want to weigh in on your experience and things that that have happened to you successfully or not. So don't, but don't give too much advice at once because, um, because you, you, again, knowing your people, they may not be able to absorb it all. You know, just just focus on that one issue. Uh, Third, don't don't be afraid to coach your boss or your peers. Uh, Although then it's even more important to know the overall mission, vision, and goals of the company. Because you may not know those people as well because you're not working with them every day, but you still want to and have to and have a responsibility for, in my opinion, coaching them if they need coaching. And then, and then fourth, uh, m- most importantly, the, the best way to instill a coaching culture is, uh, is to lead by example. Coach a lot. Coach in all kinds of different um, situations and settings. Reinforce coaching if, if things that you've said before, if it's not sticking. Give examples. And then um, you know, ask your team, the people that you're coaching, how they're doing at coaching their team. And by doing this, you're, you're instilling that all the way down the line. And, uh, and eventually you will have a, cult, a coaching culture, a great one.
0: Wow, um, thank you. I, I, it, that's perfect summary and a good place to leave it. You know, Tom, we, we had a great conversation here. We talked about the importance of getting to know your people, personalized coaching, hiring for merit and cultural fit. Uh, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom uh, with us. Um, Thanks for taking the time. You're quite welcome, Matt. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Look forward to chatting with you. Awesome. And for everybody out there, hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please let us know. Engage on LinkedIn. Like, comment, tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to see more of. Hit the subscribe button. Follow us. Um, And until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C O A C H E M dot I O. And follow us on Twitter at CoachemNow. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember coachem if you want to keep them.